you know, just something had to give. You know, it's a lot of work. I was always running in a tier one election. Um, and uh, it's, it's not a job I think you can kind of half do or coast through. Um, so just something had to give. Um, so I'm kind of looking forward to, you know, taking a little break. I'm not saying I'll be out of politics forever. And welcome to the Cloudcast. My name is Ben Zielinski, and I will be your host this week. For this week's episode, I sat down with Representative Mark Batnick, a Republican from Plainfield. Batnick currently serves as the floor leader for the House Republican Caucus and announced late last year he will not be seeking another term in the General Assembly. Batnick currently represents the 97th House District in the south suburbs. In addition to his role as floor leader, he is also the Republican spokesperson on the House Personnel and Pensions Committee. Batnick has worked in real estate for most of his career and was first elected to the House in 2014. He was named floor leader for the House Republicans in 2019. State Representative Mark Batnick, a Plainfield Republican, joins us now in the Cloutcast. Thanks for joining us, Representative. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So after serving in the House for the last eight years, um, you decided it's time to retire. You're giving up legislating. Tell me a little bit about this decision. You're a pretty popular guy among both caucuses in the House. Um, why'd you decide to give it up now? So I, I appreciate you saying that. And I appreciate you saying retiring or not running again, because I'm definitely not retiring. I need a job. I need to work. Um, but it was just uh, eight years felt right. I'm a term limits guy. Not that I thought eight years was per, you know exactly it. Um, I never really intended on it being my main my main career, I guess. Uh, very honored to have served eight years. But it's interesting. When I first came to the house, my wife was working from home. I have five kids. Uh, one was just went to college. Another one just had his car was a junior in high school and one in middle school, two younger ones at home. And my wife was working at home. Um, now <laughs> I've only got two at home, but they're both in travel sports. Uh, my wife is a special ed teacher, but she's also getting her, her, her uh, second master's to be potentially a principal. And, um, you know, with one daughter in Arizona, another one away at school and my son and weddings and, and everything going, just something had to give, you know, it's a lot of work. I was always running in a tier one election. Um, and, uh, it's, it's not a job I think you can kind of half do or coast through. Um, so just something had to give. Um, so I'm kind of looking forward to, you know, taking a little break. I'm not saying I'll be out of politics forever. Um, but, uh, it was, it was a good time and it, it definitely with, with, with the family, the family, it wasn't just any one single thing. I mean, my private sector work stuff is busy. Um, I like being home. Uh, my, my two youngest kids, uh, you know, freshman and eighth grade, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to spending a little bit more time with them, uh, before they're sick of dad. So just kind of all of it came together and the timing felt, timing felt right. Yeah. So what's going to be next for you after January, you know, you kind of alluded to maybe you'd come back to politics again. You know, what do you think that may look like? What are you going to do here in the short term over the next few years? Yeah. So, um, I still have my real estate company and I, I've, I've, uh, we're actually about to start, uh, celebrate the 30th year of a contracting company. My partner and I have, uh, started, um, and, and he's been very busy with it. He could use a little bit of help. Uh, he's also seven years older than me, so it's it's also time for me to kind of maybe slide in uh, with that over the next few years. So I've been in the contracting real estate, and I'll, I'll be involved. You know, I told uh, 
I told uh, the head of the chamber, I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to parking cars during the uh, car show nights on Tuesday or helping out at Plainfield Fest a little bit more. So I'll be involved locally. And I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll always want to help Republican candidates um, get elected and, and, and do stuff like that. But it's, it's a pretty good time to get off of the, uh, off the hamster wheel to say, it, to put it kind of nicely. Yeah. You're not done with Springfield just yet though. You got a few days of veto session coming up here in the November. Um, then we'll probably have something for lame duck in January. Are there any sort of like final goals on your list that you want to get done in the last few days of session? Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got two or three actually. So I think I've got two that actually can be done. Um, and I think you might've actually tweeted about this if I remember correctly. I mean, since I was a kid, there has been that sign on, on the Dan Ryan that says I-57 Memphis, and it has bothered me forever. And I was at a, uh, I was at uh, a comedy, I was at the Vic um, watching Pat McGann do, do a comedy show. And he's obviously, you know, he's the type of guy that's going to have a Netflix special in a few years. He's, he's starting to be pretty, pretty big time nationally. And he was, he said he liked coming back to Chicago to do local Chicago jokes. And he was doing this big, long set about uh, um, where he lives in Chicago and how far on the South or Southwest side where he lives is and how it's past the Memphis sign. And, and uh, I nudged my, nudged my wife and I said, and I-57 doesn't even go to Memphis. And then the next joke from Pat again, he said, and I-57 doesn't even go to Memphis. And I was like, you know what? Heck with it. I'm filing a resolution to get J.B. Pritzker to tear down that sign. So um, it's interesting. We've actually got quite a bit of love from, uh, from that, from that resolution. I just think we should be promoting maybe Champaign or, uh, some other city in the state of Illinois, as opposed to Memphis, especially since it doesn't go to, uh, Memphis anyway. So I'd like to get that signed up, but then on a, on a serious, on a serious note, I filed legislation, um, making parents criminally responsible for their kids if they sign for a FOID card. I think this is common sense legislation. This is the type of, uh, uh, gun reform bill that I think it enjoyed broad bipartisan support. And I'd love to see, I'd love to see that piece of legislation actually uh, get called if we do something during either uh, veto session or, or lame duck. And then the other thing I'm working on today is I, I don't think we have time for it, but I am working on a long-term uh, pension and property tax reduction bill. Um, so that's something that I'll be putting out, uh, sometime in the next week or so, I'd say just the, 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 the blueprint on, on how to make a serious dent in, in our, in our property tax rate. So, so those are kind of, kind of some of the, the ideas that I want to want to put out there and things that I want to get past here before uh, clock strikes midnight. Yeah. I know one of your proudest accomplishments is a pension bill. Yep. Not many people go to Springfield saying that they want their biggest accomplishment to be a pension bill, but tell us what the bill does and why you're so proud of it. Yeah. So there's never been any, um, there had never previously been any savings to, to tier one and obviously, uh, pensions, um, they got up to about 29% of our budget and are starting to decrease, but they're a huge portion of our budget. And it's because of, uh, you know, skipping payments in the past. And my bill simply allowed people to get an access to what's called the net present value of their pension and get the cash immediately. And there's a lot of reasons to do it. So when, when somebody retires and let's say they're going to get $2 million over the rest of their life in, in, in annuities, you don't need $2 million in the bank the day they retire. They might have, you know, $1.4 million earning interest 
So there's going to be a withdrawal, whatever's left, earns interest, so on and so forth. So that's called your net present value. And um, we, we allowed a buyout, and I think this can be expanded to allow people to have a, access to a small portion of what their net present value is. And that is the difference between a 3% uh, compound um, annual increase and a one and a half simple. And it allows them to take the cash immediately. Now, some people might say, well, why would you want to do that? Well, number one, um, you, you can't will a pension, but you can you can will a 401k or 403b. So you can roll it into a qualified right retirement account. Maybe you want to invest in your kid's business. Maybe you want to buy some real estate. Maybe you want to buy some farmland. Maybe, maybe you just don't have longevity in your life and you want to spend some money while you're young at 65 as opposed to be making the most money when you're 90 in a nursing home. So it allows people to have access to some of the retirement money. And there was a 25% savings to the state. So the deal was, we'll give you 75% of your net present value. And you get to, you know, you get to keep 75%. The, the state saves uh, 25%. The other benefit of it is, is, you know, pensions are expected to get a seven-ish, seven to eight-ish percent return. So when we trade this, it's like you're trading a $100,000 mortgage for $75,000, but you're also trading a 7 8% interest rate for whatever bond rate you can get, let's say 4%. So there's an arbitrage play there. So it's actually something that has the ability to save the state billions of dollars. And it was kind of, um, it's not always good to think out of the box, but it was kind of one of the out-of-box ideas I had that I was that I was pretty proud of. And, and it's, it's, it's making a real difference. It doesn't solve the whole problem, but it's certainly making a real difference. Yeah, and now you currently hold a pretty important position in the House Republican Caucus as floor leader. So for our listeners who maybe aren't regular General Assembly watchers and see what you do every day, um, this basically means you're overseeing Republican debate on these bills. What's this? What's the job like? Yeah, it's interesting. There's certainly a pretty uh, pretty steep learning curve, and I can I can I can share a mistake uh, that I made early on and learned from. So. When you're not floor leader and you're just representing yourself, you just you're, you're you're totally speaking about from your position. When you're floor leader, what you're doing is you're trying to organize debate on on every bill, and you don't necessarily know what bill is going to be called, so you have to be prepared for for hundreds and, and hundreds of bills, and be prepared to have a debate on whatever gets called. And what you have to learn, one of the things that you have to learn as floor leader is that you're no longer representing yourself; you're representing the caucus. So I remember very early on, I thought there was a bill that was a great bill. I remember it was a Rep Didich bill. Um, I loved it. And I started talking about how awesome it was, not realizing that there are a few members of my caucus that absolutely hated the bill. Um, and I learned from there that my job was to, in most cases, vet the bill. So is to know the bill inside and out, draw things, because sometimes there's going to be scenarios where maybe upstate is for it, downstate is against it, or vice versa. Maybe it's a bill where um, we're, we're split in, in a different way besides, you know, geographically, some, some sort of ideological split. And you want to pull out um, you want to pull out information from the sponsor of the bill so that uh, uh, people can make the right vote for them. So what you're trying to do is protect your caucus. And the other thing that I learned, I initially thought that my job was to really go in and head debate on the very big bills that you hear out, the, one, the ones that are in the news. Um, the ones that get a lot of press, the ones that have hour-long debates. That's really not my job. My job is to be talking on all the small bills that not many people are paying attention to and pulling out things. So some people never want to vote for a pension sweetener, no matter who it's for, right? So I need to pull that out on a pension pillar. 
if there's something more money for Chicago or immigration or whatever it is, I know that there's certain members of my caucus that will want to do, vote a certain way based on that. Um, on the big bills, and especially when we're all unified as a caucus, really my job is to organize the debate, make sure we're, we're kind of on point, uh, make sure that, you know, maybe two people aren't saying the same thing and missing something, you know, trying to spread out the, the talking points or the main statements on the bill. On big bills, people generally know how they're going to vote. They don't need me. It's the small bills where they actually probably need me a little bit more. Yeah, you can often have quite a diverse group of opinions on some bills in the caucus where you know some members support, as you kind of mentioned there, bills that other members would definitely not vote for. How do you manage that in especially managing your time on the floor, getting, I guess, those multiple voices of support and opposition to a bill time to speak? Yeah, it's that that that's a part that's a, that's a that's a little bit more challenging, and it, it's just trying to get the the everybody wants to hear their own voice, and you try to get the members to not be redundant, and maybe you try to spread it out a, a, a little bit. So um, I, I very quickly learned that as floor leader, I'm almost doing my best job when I'm speaking less. So if, if somebody's an expert in the field, I'll give you Patrick Windhorst for an example. He's he's a former state's attorney. When we're dealing with criminal justice bills, he does it, right? Jackie Haas sits behind me, former social worker. So it's uh, if, if I see a bill that, that that's coming up that deals with the topic that I think Jackie would be great at, I try to hand that off to, to Jackie. So um, there's a lot of people on the team. If you want to compare it to a sport like football, it's a lot easier for me as a quarterback to hand it off to somebody that's an expert in that field or is on that committee or whatever it is um, and spread the wealth a little bit so that they don't feel like they need to talk on, on every bill. They feel like they, they have, you know, their voice has been heard. Yeah. I mean, and the house can do a lot of bills in one day, especially as the end of session comes around. How do you yourself prepare for those bills? So you know, what's, what's coming up and what these bills actually do. Well, number one, I wear gym shoes on those long days because the floor is hard and uh, it's another lesson I learned, but I, I usually, I study over the weekend, study nightly, um, but when we're wearing down the weeks where it's Tuesday to Friday, I'll come down Monday, I'll sit on the floor, um, I'll bring the bills up with all the analysis, and I'll go through all the open bills that are on, on second or third reading and make notes on them. Who's going to talk? Um, am I going to talk? Is the caucus likely to go up? Or sometimes I'll say, I'll have an up arrow, but I'll have some notes that I know three people are going to want to be down. And it's literally just, there's nothing overly hard about it. It's just a time consuming process, but it's actually, um, it's actually one of some of my favorite days are sitting there on the house floor by myself reviewing bills. I, I feel like it's, I do feel honored. It's a special moment. Um, usually at the end of the day, Tim Butler will bring me a beverage, um, to, uh, enjoy once I'm done reviewing all the bills, but, um, that's how that that's really the biggest way to do it. You have to stay on top of it, and then going into the weeks, it's it's usually a, a pretty full full Monday or Sunday if we're down there on the Monday, of of just going through all the bills, and then once I'm done, then I then I relax. And then when it comes to I guess preparing the members for what's coming up, I mean you got you have 45 people you're responsible for. Not everyone has time to read these bills, especially when they come up for you know just a few minutes of debate. And then they have to make a decision how to vote. How do you prepare your members for what's in these bills and 
so they know which way they want to go on it. Yeah, and that's part of the and that that's and it's all those bills where, where we need to do the where I need that's where I think my job is the most salient, and that's where I have to have a series of questions prepared to pull things out of the bill to to bring up the key points that are going to be um, triggers to members to vote yes or vote no. So I it, and the other side knows what I'm doing. I'll, sometimes I'll vet a bill and I'll say something like, "Thank you, representative. I think there'll be some people voting for this, and there'll be some people voting against it." And then that that wakes people up to be like, okay, wait a second, is this a bill I'm for or against? Um, and and there's those kind of kind of tra- I use the term Christmas tree sometimes. It's going to be red and green over here. It's going to be kind of like Christmas. Um, so and and you do those sorts of things just to kind of wake up your members when they're having a sidebar conversation or whatever it is, then to pay attention and uh, figure out how they're going to vote on that particular bill. So little little clues like that. One of my personal frustrations about the general assembly is is the caucusing and how one hour caucuses can turn into two three hours and we end up spending a full afternoon in caucuses and five o'clock comes around and we haven't done much throughout the day can you shed a little bit of light on actually what's happening in those caucuses and why you call for them such as you know when a big controversial bill may come up yeah so when when a big controversial bill comes up we're usually going in there just formulating our plan, making sure everybody's on the same page, seeing if anybody has any questions. When we have those one, two, three, four hour caucuses, they're usually unnecessary. And I'm just going to leave it at that. It's the same question over and over asked by different members. And, and, and that's kind of it. But um, uh, when there's, when there's a big bill, they're necessary. And it's interesting when there's kind of a single big bill, I think you'll find that those are the times where the caucuses are closer to one hour. My biggest frustration is, is we say, let's caucus for an hour. And somehow it takes everybody 30 minutes to get from the house floor to the caucus room, um, as opposed to just going down there right away. So I can, I can, I can tell you that a lot of time is just spent going to and going back from, from caucus. I'll also tell you that a lot of Dems always ask me, do I have time for lunch? And I usually have to say, yes, you have time to go to Boone's and grab lunch while we caucus. Well, that's, that's good to know that. At least some of it's just procrastination as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but when, you know, so, so Mike Madigan, he left the house, you know, two years ago now. And when he left, there's a lot of talk about in Speaker Welch's early days about the house functions and how the house is actually going to, to run. And there's a lot of hope among Republicans and Leader Durkin that you'll have more chances to present bills. How, how do you feel things have gone since Speaker Madigan left and now we have Speaker Welch and, and just your opportunity to participate in debate. Yeah, I mean, Speaker Welch is certainly more approachable, but the rules are essentially the same. I, I think we might have tweaked one or two things, but the rules are essentially the same. I think the the biggest change I'd like to see in the House is, frankly, some more balance, both in terms of balance of power, in terms of number of seats, but also, you know, Illinois is a center left state. It's not a far left state. And we've been we've been governing from the House as as if it's a far left state. Um, And I'd like to see more compromise bills come come to the floor. The gun bill that I mentioned that that I'm that I'm pushing, I think, is a perfect example. But there's all kinds of things on 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 voting, on taxation. I mean, you name it. I think there's a lot of a lot of pieces of legislation that if they saw the light of day, would get a hundred votes, but they get buried for whatever reason. So that's what I'd really like to see more of. Yeah, the House rules got a lot of attention in the spring session with the mask rules and 
how it changed between the governor's executive order and then I guess it was the lack of change in the House rules. How challenging was that for you, especially just given that it was a lot of your members protesting and it put off debate and other things throughout the day? It just, um, I think one of the things all of us have to realize is that what the drama that happens in the House, 99% of the public doesn't know about, and we should probably just spend more time focusing on the 99%. But, you know, you have 118 members, 45 on our side, and you got to give everybody their piece. Um, but I, I tend to like to avoid drama. It's the way I approached, obviously, being floor leader. I wanted to get through bills quickly. If there was, you know, if there was... There wasn't any reason to debate a bill because it was a benign bill. I would just, you know, wave my finger like this and we would move on to the next bill with no debate. So um, I like things going quicker, more efficiently and less drama. So it was frustrating, but, you know, I get it. People want to people want to make their statements and they're they're duly elected. So they have the right to do it. Speaking of spending a long time in the House, we spent was close to a 24 hour day at the end of session there with (laughs) When our session wrapped up around six o'clock in the morning on the final day back in April there, maybe as floor leader, you know, that stuff doesn't happen every year. But do you have any ideas for maybe the majority party as to how you would want to see us move along faster and so we don't have to do that again? Well, you know, they have they have everything seems to work on the deadline. And Andrew Chesney, actually, I believe, is the one that proposed this bill you shouldn't pass bills between midnight, like 8 a.m. Just have a hard fast. If we had a midnight deadline where just session doesn't happen between midnight and 8 a.m., I think that would just be, we would just finish things earlier. Um, And we sat around a lot that day, if I remember right, waiting for drafting and waiting for this and waiting for that. Everything would just get pushed back if everybody didn't know that they could just go into the middle of the night. So um, I like the idea of having a 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. or 12 a.m. to 8 a.m. moratorium on passing legislation. So that would be my one idea. Yeah, normally we're not we're not there quite that long because sometimes we do have that midnight deadline, I guess you could say, because we're there on May 31st and then clock hits midnight on June 1st and all of a sudden you need 71 votes to pass a bill right. out of the House. Um, right. You know, I guess, what was your observations on the early end to spring session, is that something you think would be worth doing again? Or do you, do you like the, the end of May closure? Oh, I got to tell you, I, I, one of the things that's interesting is I'm not even sure I would have done my fourth term if COVID didn't hit. So I loved it. I love working from home. I love having things done by April 8th. Um, once again, it's a deadline. That's one of the reasons why I didn't mind going through the night is because I knew we were going home uh, awfully early. And uh, if you have kids and stuff at home, man, May, April and May are really busy, busy times. And you miss a lot. You miss graduations. You miss baseball. You miss soccer. You miss um, all, all, all the spring sports. So I enjoy having the, the front-loaded uh, session quite a bit. And it proves you can do it if you need to. From a legislative point, was that easy or hard just having essentially what was three months of session versus five months? Yeah, I think the biggest, the thing that's probably harder from a legislating standpoint is, is that I do think we need to be down there more for committee. I think you can do it in three months as long as we're going down in January, February, March for, for our committee work, because legislation is better when you have the interested parties being able to see people and have sidebars. So 
I might be in pensions committee, but I might be talking to um, somebody from a different committee that finds me or talking from talking to, you know, somebody that has an interest on a bill or talking to another legislator on my pensions uh, committee about a different bill. And you miss all those sidebars and it's really hard going in green and not really seeing people until you're taking the vote. I think having everybody in the Capitol and having, having people have access to you and you then having access to the, that information is a better, better legislating process. So I do hope we get back to a more normal in-person person committee schedule moving forward. Yeah. What are your thoughts on those virtual committees? I mean, obviously you kind of made the point there that having them in person is good because you can talk to people and you can have those interactions with your colleagues. Some people also like the the virtual nature, especially for witnesses who aren't able to come to Springfield. Now they're here able to testify. Is there maybe a way we can balance this? What do you want to see? What do you think would be good going forward? I think witnesses moving forward should always be able to, to, to testify virtually. I mean, we've had times where we filed a bill and people wouldn't have had time to come from Chicago to testify on that bill before we vote on it in committee and then vote on it in the floor. And that's just wrong. But I think the I think the members need to be at the Capitol, and I believe that people need to have access to the members. They don't necessarily need to have access to every other witness, but they do need to have access to the members. So I would like that hybrid um, hybrid situation. I also don't like all of, I, I stopped allowing people to vote remotely. I thought that was being abused uh, on the House floor when people were, I don't know, sitting on the beach in Florida or whatever. And, and voting. I just don't, I don't, I don't think that was the intent. Um, so I think we need, we can make exceptions, but it shouldn't be kind of the rule of the way that we legislate. So definitely, and for committees, we definitely absolutely need to allow uh, witnesses to testify uh, electronically. But um, other than that, I think we need to be there. There's going to be kind of a lot of change starting with the next General Assembly, not to mention it's just an election year and people could change losing, winning elections. But you know, we have several people who are going to be gone. Greg Harris, your counterpart, he's going to be gone. The Greg, the Greg Harris loss is a huge, huge loss of, of knowledge. He's the, he's the type of guy that they're going to write a book about someday. I'm the type of guy that's going to read that book. Um, that's the difference between, between him and I. So that Greg Harris is a huge loss. Yeah. But then on, on your own side, the caucus will lose yourself. Um, leader Demmer is going to be gone because he's running for treasurer. Avery Bourne will be gone because she unsuccessfully ran for lieutenant governor. What do you just kind of see as the, the future of the Repu House Republican caucus? And, you know, where's, where's the experience going to be coming from? You know, what kind of changes do you see coming up next year? Yeah, my biggest concern, I had this conversation with a colleague today. My, my biggest concern isn't necessarily the change of people um, as it is, is the I, we're losing a lot of we're losing a lot of people that were kind of policy heavy and the nature of politics has become so base orientated and red meat and that's easy to do and maybe fun for some people back home but eventually it does come down to people having to legislate and carry carrying the water on some on some sometimes some complicated issues um and like you said we're losing you know uh Demer handled a lot of the budget and a lot of the uh medicaid stuff um, or Medicare stuff. Um, Avery Bourne's a big law. I mean, just, I think we're losing one, two, three, four, we're losing five people out of leadership. Um, so you're, you're, you're losing quite a bit of people. I kind of was the pension guy 
right? So um, um, I know we have uh, Marty McLaughlin comes from that field, but in terms of knowing the history um, uh, in the legislature, that's a, a little bit of a uh, of an issue. I know we have some people that are going to be 22, 25 coming in that probably don't have as much even life experience to to bring to the table from a policy standpoint. So I'll be blunt. I'm concerned um, that I don't want our party to become so focused on red meat and, and, and away from policy, because I think we've done that at the national level to our detriment. The Republican Party is always supposed to be about good, sound policy. We're supposed to be the policy people, the ones that are the, the adults in the room on spending. It's great. You either, you want to spend everything. You want to help everybody. That's not realistic. Here's the real policy and how we make it happen. So I'm hoping that the people that are there and that some of the people that are coming in can, can fill that void. But I'll be blunt. I'm concerned. Yeah, it's become a big topic just nationally in general when we look at the Republican Party and say, well, what's the direction of this party? Are we going to be focusing on you know some of these more social headline grabbing issues like COVID shutdowns? Um, you know, the sex education bill has gotten a lot of ed- attention here in Illinois. Um, but historically in Illinois, one of our big conversations has been those policy things like the budget and we have a large pension yep. debt that we have to deal with. How do you, I guess, propose that House Republicans stay on topic and, and on those messages and focus on some of those more nitty gritty details of state government as opposed to these larger things you see on, you know, national news shows every night. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I learned from the minority party is to keep just throwing out ideas um, that are sometimes boring, but try to get them into the bloodstream. So, I mean, essentially that's what happened with the buyout, but there's been other ideas that I've had that I've either done a press conference on or filed a bill and then somebody else picks it up or it becomes part of, part of something else, whether it be some ideas on procurement reform or, or anything else. And I, I think, you just need to, one of the things I do hope to do, I obviously won't have as much influence, but if I have an idea, I'm going to put it out there. I'll talk to my friends that are colleagues, try to get them to put it out there. Um, you just try to put good ideas in the bloodstream and move things forward that way. And hopefully um, that's really the only way to do it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the public does on November 8th, um, whether they're, if it's a red meat election or if it's a policy election, I think that's going to tell the tale quite a bit too. Yeah. Leader Durkin was telling us at the fair, you know, he's very excited about having 106 house Republican candidates this year. Um, you're going to need at least 15 of those to pick up the majority. You only need to take down three Democrats to get rid of the supermajority that they have. How do you just see at least, you know, two months out here, November going for your caucus and just, you know, general assembly elections? Well, the map's, the map's obviously going to be a challenge with us. So we need to pick up three, but we need to pick up four seats essentially to stay even, right? So we have I'm leaving, Seth Lewis is leaving, um, Tom Morrison is leaving, and uh, um, there's kind of an open seat downstate that was made out of the um, uh, kind of where Dan, where Dan Brady was, right? So we have, we have kind of some safe out of in, between incumbents and kind of safe seats. We're really at 41. Um, so we have to pick up four to stay at 45, and then we need to pick up three on top of that. So obviously, uh, we're going against a really big money cannon. That's going to be difficult. Um, we're going against some headwinds uh, nationally. I think one of the Republicans, or the, the, the party not in power usually does well because it's a referendum on the party in power. I think one of the challenges of this election is this is 
essentially Trump's fourth election, right? This is this election is turning into a with the amount of headlines he's grabbing. I see him in the news more than I see the president in the, in the news. This is slowly becoming a referendum on Trump as opposed to a referendum on Biden. And in midterms, it's actually one of those times where it's easier to beat somebody with nobody because you can't hate nobody. Right. Um, and it's the, the national trend has kind of shifted there. So I think the uh, there's some people in my party that are getting it. But I think that um, there needs to be more people that need to recognize that there isn't this big guaranteed red wave coming, uh, especially to a state like Illinois, especially with the money cannon that the Democrats have between Pritzker, the unions and everything else. I mean, they're going to be at a pretty huge advantage uh, monetarily, and that's going to be pretty tough to keep up with. So um, expectations should probably be brought down a little bit. And when we meet in January for the new General Assembly, is there anybody you think would be good to replace you as floor leader in your caucus? Oh, boy, that's a great question. I actually think there's I, 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 I want to say that a, a good half of the caucus is probably good and ready for it. Um, I would immediately rule out anybody that hasn't been there for at least, a you know, anybody new that's that that's coming in, certainly. But there actually are some people that would be sophomores uh, that I would recommend. I don't want to say any names because I'm going to f- forget some people, but I've gone, gone through that previously. And, and I think there's a pretty, there's actually a longer list than what people would realize, um, on what it would be. You know, it was interesting because before me, the, every, every floor leader I served under was an attorney and took more of an attorney approach, uh, which then I think is, is certainly a different approach than what I took that obviously takes something that that's a little bit more specialized. But if you take the approach, um, kind of the approach that I've taken, that's uh, probably a little bit, it was easier for me. Um, I think there's a whole host of people that would be would be pretty good at it. If you have any ideas, I, I'd be interested to hear who you think might be a, a, a good one. There's a lot of people who, they have experience. They, they're good debaters. And I think people like good debaters. So um, it yeah. will be interesting to see who is, uh, who is chosen for that role. Um, do you have a, a parting message, I guess, to your caucus? You know, what, what's, you know, you have all this experience looking at legislation, leading them through debate. What would be your, your message to them going forward to be able to continue to have productive debates? Uh, so productive dates from, from, a floor, from just from a floor leader standpoint or from a entire caucus standpoint? I guess from a floor leader standpoint. Yeah, I've actually I actually have a, a, a list of uh, a list of, of kind of to do's things that I learned um, along the way. But I would probably go back to what I said originally in that um, most of the time you're vetting the bill and you have to understand that your caucus is diverse and they're going to vote differently. And it's not your job to advocate for the bill the way you think. It's your job to get enough information out there so that everybody else in the caucus can vote the way that they need to vote for their switch. Um, Beyond that, when we get to the bigger bills, I think we're just better off if you spread it out and one person is making one point. Um, I've seen time and time again, if somebody tries to make 10 points, they might have this one great point and it gets lost between everything else that they're talking about. Um, So on the, on the bigger bills, I I, I think it's, it's a be bold, be brief, be gone. Um, is the best way to, uh, to to approach some of those bigger bills. Those would be a couple of things that come right off the top of my head. Representative Mark Batnick, thank you so much for coming on the Cloudcast and best of luck in 
whatever the future holds for you after this journey through the house. I appreciate it. With Batnick's seat open, Plainfield Township Clerk Michelle Smith, a Republican, will face off against Democrat Harry Benton, who is a Plainfield trustee. According to IllinoisElectionData.com, the newly drawn 97th House District leans Democratic, with Joe Biden winning the district by 10 points in 2020 and J.B. Pritzker winning the district by 8 points in 2018. This week's episode of the Cloutcast was produced and edited by me, Ben Zielinski. Be sure to check back in a few weeks for another episode.